0: This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC, points through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. Evaluation of Chronic Nausea and Vomiting. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jingjing Jing Mao.
1: We've all experienced it before. The disquiet royal in our stomach, the sense of uneasiness and foreboding, Our hands growing clammy, our vision starting to dull, and then the often violent, forceful, convulsions expelling our last meal out from the inside and flooding into our mouths and then out. Our heads drenched in cold sweat, but finally, the relief at having thrown up. For most of us, nausea and vomiting is just a temporary discomfort, perhaps a consequence of something we ate motion sickness, or the stomach flu. The causes really are endless, but a subset of patients experience nausea and vomiting repeatedly over a long period of time and sometimes to such a severe degree that they become dehydrated and require hospitalization. Cyclic vomiting syndrome, or CVS, was first described in 1861 by Swiss physician Henri Clermont Lombard in pediatric patients. While CVS has been a known entity in pediatrics now for over 250 years, it has only recently been recognized in adults in the past three decades. The condition isn't as rare as you might think, but it often goes unrecognized because of the many different causes of vomiting. Today's webcast is on the evaluation of chronic nausea and vomiting with an emphasis on cyclic vomiting syndrome. I am very delighted to welcome a world renowned expert of cyclic vomiting syndrome as our presenter today. Dr. Thungam Venkatesan is a professor of internal medicine at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, specializing in gastroenterology, where she is the director of neurogastroenterology and motility. Welcome to MedNet.
2: Thank you so much, Jingjing, for uh, having me here. And as you said, it's a very distressing condition. Mm -hmm. And I'm really happy to be able to present on this today.
1: Well, thank you so much for being here to share your expertise. As I said, everyone at some point in their lives gets the pleasure of experiencing nausea and vomiting. But what would constitute chronic nausea and vomiting?
2: So I think the um, it really depends. The definition depends on the disorder. For example, cyclic vomiting syndrome, you need to have episodes which occur over a year before you can make a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And uh, say for cannabinoid hyperemesis, you need it for six months. So Mm -hmm. the definition kind of varies a little bit. Mm -hmm. But in general, an acute acute nausea and vomiting, for instance, like viral gastroenteritis, you actually have resolution of symptoms pretty quickly in a few days, as opposed to chronic nausea and vomiting which you can have it for several weeks or months. Okay. Thank you so much. For our
1: viewers, please check out our website at go.osu.edu 21 You can find our full catalog of 120 CME webcasts there with the instructions to receive your CME credit and ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcast. Search for OSU MedNet21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about today's program or any of our other programs, please send those to us
2: using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Dango? Thank you. Thank you, Jingjing. So, today I'm going to talk about the evaluation and management of chronic nausea and vomiting, and these are my objectives. Though we'll talk briefly about this, the main thing, the main focus of my talk today is going to be on cyclic vomiting syndrome and a little bit about cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And I hope you can go away today understanding how to diagnose and manage these conditions. And uh, so when you talk about chronic nausea and vomiting, it was actually initially a protective mechanism during human evolution to avoid, say, food poisoning where we were foraging for food. But I think in the modern world, this is less relevant. And uh, we talk about nausea and vomiting, and though they occur together, they are different. Now, nausea is actually a very debilitating symptom, and it is very important for clinicians actually not to dismiss this. Uh, You really cannot see this. It's a subjective symptom that the patient will experience. And uh, it's different for different uh, patients. It's generally described as an aversive experience or an unpleasant sensation that precedes or accompanying MSS. Now, nausea can occur by itself without any vomiting, and sometimes you can have vomiting without nausea they are very it is very difficult to treat with standard antiemetics and so that's also very important to understand it can be very bothersome and disabling and it is also associated with some comorbidities uh, conditions like anxiety and depression and so on and in fact though there's not much known about it uh, the network for nausea overlaps with mood and emotion and pr- uh, cognitive processing and so on now what about vomiting vomiting is actually an active process, and like Jing Jing was saying, uh, you have an expulsion of gastric contents, there's an increase in thoracic and abdominal pressure. Now a lot of people also retch, and that's really because there's nothing left over in their stomach, and while there's no expulsion of gastric contents, it's very important to understand that these two symptoms are equally distressing to the patients. Now in vomiting, there's an increase in both thoracic and abdominal pressure, but in retching, there's an increase in abdominal pressure and a. Decrease decrease in thoracic pressure. You also need to understand what is not vomiting when you're in clinic. So there are two conditions. One is regurgitation, and the other thing is rumination, which is also somewhat common. Now regurgitation is actually a passive process. So patients will just experience a passive reflux of esophageal content. This is typically seen in conditions like gastroesophageal reflux disease. Rumination is a different type of disorder, and in fact, what patients will often describe is they have a recurrent regurgitation of recently ingested food. This occurs, may occur after eating, and they actually experience it coming back into the stomach, and they will actually spit it out, or they can even swallow it. And typically, regurgitation is not preceded by nausea. It's not associated with retching, and it's very important to differentiate between these these various conditions because the treatment actually varies. And uh, what about causes of chronic nausea and vomiting? Again, like Dr. Jingjing uh, you know, referred to, there are multiple causes, and we can probably spend two days talking about it. But in general, if you look at it, one is you can have nausea and vomiting, which comes from any cause in the GI tract. You can have vestibular causes. You can have things like motion sickness. You can have a space-occupying lesion in your brain that's causing nausea and vomiting. But today, for the purposes of this talk, I'm going to really focus on cyclic vomiting syndrome. And uh, I like to start with a case, and I want you to kind of go through through the case with me. So this is actually something that I see in clinic all the time. And so this is Mrs. M. She's a 35-year-old female. She has five years. She gives us a history of five years of episodic nausea, vomiting, and also abdominal pain. She says it occurs every three months. It lasts about five days. She notices that stress and travel will trigger these symptoms. The symptoms are relieved by sleep, hot showers, and also cannabis use. She does say that she uses cannabis about once a week. And she started it about four years ago because she was told by some of her friends that it might be helpful. Uh, She does have some underlying mild anxiety, which she attributes to this illness. She's had three hospitalizations of the past year. She was treated with IV fluids and standard antiemetics each time. Her symptoms improved in about three days, and then she was told to quit marijuana. The patient quit marijuana for about six months, but then she continued to have symptoms, so she resumed use. Now she's seen three gastroenterologists, and she's had three AGDs, one colonoscopy, and this is unfortunately very typical. She's had four CT scans of the abdomen and pelvis. She also had a four-hour gastric emptying study that was mildly delayed and she was treated and given a trial of reglan but this was not helpful she was asked to quit marijuana again and um, you know this was really left her very frustrated and finally she was so sick she lost her job and then she came to see me so obviously i had to diagnose and treat her and so here's a question for you What is your diagnosis? Can it be gastroparesis? Is it cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome? You have to remember she was using marijuana. Is it cyclic vomiting syndrome? And is it psychogenic vomiting? So really, the diagnosis here is CVS. She had stereotypic episodes of nausea and vomiting. And I'll go over why it's not the other options. Uh, Psychogenic vomiting is something that should not actually be used. It is no longer part of the GI nomenclature and it has been abandoned. Now, uh, I am gonna talk a little bit about CHS and gastroparesis, but briefly, it's not CHS because her marijuana use actually followed the onset of symptoms, so it didn't precede it. And the other thing is she actually stopped marijuana for six months and she didn't really have any change in her symptoms. Uh, It's also not gastroparesis. Because uh, mild it's, she only had mild uh, delay in gastric emptying, and her symptoms are very classic for CBS. So what is CVS, what is cyclic vomiting syndrome? And um, now I really want you to understand that these are called disorders of gut-brain interaction. The Center for Nausea and Vomiting is actually in your brain. And so something is off with this neurocircuitry, which is what causes these. They are characterized by recurrent stereotypic episodes of nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. So it is like a rerun of a bad movie over and over again. And so when somebody is in clinic, it's very important to go back and elicit this history, ask them, have you ever had these episodes before? And the other thing is most patients actually return to normal or baseline in between episodes. So in many patients, it's like a switch, and an on-off switch, and they will really go back to normal and feel completely fine in between episodes. Now, contrary to common opinion, CVS is actually very common, and we do have studies looking at this now. So we had a population-based study in the U.S. and U.K., and other countries in Europe, and we know that the prevalence in adults is about 2%. So 2 in 100 actually have this disorder. The prevalence in children is also similar, as you can see. It's about 1.9 to 2.3%. And to put this in perspective, it's actually similar to celiac disease, and it's 10 times higher than gastroparesis. Now, unfortunately, cyclic vomiting syndrome cannot be diagnosed by a blood test. It doesn't have any biomarkers. We don't know enough about it. For instance, like hypothyroidism, you can send somebody for a TSH, but you can't do that for CVS. So CVS is diagnosed by something called Rome criteria. It's similar to the DSM criteria in, say, psychology, and we have, these are actually internationally accepted criteria. And these are the Rome clinical criteria for making a diagnosis of cyclic vomiting syndrome. So essentially, you need to have stereotypical episodes of vomiting, which are usually less than one week, they're abrupt in onset, they last for uh, or less than one week again, though sometimes it's longer than that, and they have to occur at least one week apart. So if somebody is vomiting every day, it's probably not CBS. They need to have at least three episodes in the prior year and two episodes in the past six months. Now typically there's absence of symptoms in between episodes, so like migraine, it's an episodic disorder, but a lot of patients actually will have milder symptoms. They can have some dyspepsia or chronic nausea, mild abdominal pain, and obviously you don't have to have, you should not have any metabolic GI, CNS, or any other biochemical disorders to explain the nausea and vomiting. And uh, like migraine, there are actually four phases of uh, CVS, and this is actually very important to recognize for both diagnostic and also therapeutic purposes. So you have the interepisodic phase where patients don't have any symptoms, they're pretty much normal. But unfortunately, when you're about to have an episode, you have what's called a prodromal phase. This is very similar to that that's seen in migraine. So before people vomit, they can have nausea, abdominal pain. Some people have an impending sense of doom and they sort of know that they're going to have an episode. Unfortunately, if you don't do anything to prevent progression, they will go into an emetic phase and there will be violent nausea, vomiting, retching, abdominal pain. Often patients are not able to communicate uh, properly during these uh, episodes, so it's very important to understand that and not dismiss them. Uh, And finally, once the emetic phase is over, they go into a recovery phase where they're able to slowly resume oral intake. Now, even though CVS says vomiting and it's a vomiting disorder, uh, really the autonomic nervous system is at play, and so you really have to recognize that patients can have multiple symptoms during an episode. So they have symptoms or they have signs like tachycardia, Uh, maybe because of the pain and the sympathetic overdrive that's occurring. Very often sometimes patients will be very hypertensive. They can have blood pressures in the 180 to 100 range and you should not diagnose them with primary hypertension. This will usually resolve once the episode is over. They appear pale, they can have actually diarrhea. It's coming out kind of both ways. Um, They can sweat a lot, they feel hot and cold, uh, they feel achy, numb, and they're often confused, and many of my patients actually describe being in a conscious coma, and so uh, really it's very important to understand uh, this problem. And uh, here are some of the autonomic symptoms that uh, you know, these patients face, um, like I said, nausea, sweating, diarrhea, and they really want to be, be out of the bright lights. So photosensitivity, they'll often be just curled up in bed in a dark room, they have headaches, uh, they have abdominal pain. So um, abdominal pain should not preclude a diagnosis of CVS. In fact, about 90% of patients do have abdominal pain. And uh, what about hot water bathing? This is actually a very unique uh, feature of cyclic vomiting syndrome, and it's not pathognomonic for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome or even CVS. So you can see it in patients with and without cannabis use. We did a study and we found that this hot water bathing was seen in about 48% of patients with cyclic vomiting syndrome who have never used cannabis versus 74% with cannabis use. And what I mean by hot water bathing is not sort of just having a hot bath to relax. They will actually go and either sit in a bath all day long till almost the water runs out, or they will just take about 10, 10 showers even a day. And, and some of my patients have actually even checked into a hotel because they run out of hot water. Uh, What about investigations? Now, I really want to emphasize that CBS should not be considered a diagnosis of exclusion, and uh, you really need to do some testing, but that should be minimal and limited. And so typically what we do is an upper endoscopy to make sure you don't have any other conditions, particularly maybe in pediatrics where you want to rule out malrotation and so on. Um, and so some other, and, and also some imaging of the abdomen and the pelvis, either a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, or in children, my colleagues will frequently get, get an upper GI uh, studies. The important thing here is to avoid repeated and unnecessary testing because this is usually futile. And it is really a very frustrating a experience for the patient. Now, I get this question a lot. What about a gastric emptying study? Actually, gastric emptying patterns are not diagnostic of CVS. And so they can be actually rapid in about 59% of patients. Uh, They are normal in about a third of patients. And there's only a small subset who have slow emptying, about 14%. But this can actually be explained by either narcotic use or cannabis use. And cannabis, per se, will actually delay gastric emptying. So please do not get a gastric emptying study on these patients, particularly if they are in cannabis, because uh, it's really of not of any diagnostic uh, value. The other thing is that rapid gastric emptying is a surrogate marker for autonomic dysfunction. And so we really don't recommend gastric emptying as a routine test. Now, unfortunately, these patients, um, this condition is very debilitating. A subset of CVS patients can have very high healthcare utilization, and as you can see here, Uh, there are patients, the median number of ED visits in a single patient was 15, and the range is one to 200. So can you imagine how distressing it is for a patient to present 200 times to the emergency room for these CBS episodes? Now this was an older study that was done in 2010, and unfortunately the diagnosis was not made in the ED almost 94% of the time and ED physicians did not even recognize this condition about 96% of the time. Now, I will say that things have improved, and again, this was an older study, uh, but it is still very under-recognized, and so it's very important for us to actually diagnose these patients promptly. CVS is expensive. And uh, this was, again, another study we did uh, based on inpatient hospitalizations. And if you can look at it, the total cost from hospitalizations due to CVS in two years was about $400 Now, this did not include testing and outpatient management and so on. And uh, this was another recent study that we did using uh, some insurance claims data. And as you can see, uh, we compared CVS patients to non-CVS patients. And so on the right, you have the non-CVS patients. On the left, you have CVS patients. And when we looked at uh, the total cost, annualized healthcare costs, you can see that for CVS patients, it was approximately around 57000 And uh, for non-CVS patients, it was a lot less. Now, I will say that these patients were actually matched for comorbidities and so on. And uh, so it is very expensive compared to other medications. What about indirect costs? Obviously, when somebody's vomiting, they can't go to work. And uh, so there is short-term absenteeism. And so many patients lose multiple weeks. In fact, the average um, loss or short-term absenteeism was about three weeks. And again, there were annualized associated costs uh, just by being out of work. And that was approximately about $2,200 um, in a year And so, I think CVS has, unfortunately, a very negative impact on patients and families and the healthcare uh, system. Many patients lose their jobs. Uh, Some patients have delay in higher education. They're unable to graduate and so on. And it's also actually significantly affects the partner or the caregiver, and I've also had some patients, unfortunately, have gone through divorce. It costs them a lot of money, and it also costs our healthcare system a lot of money. Uh, 30% of CVS patients can be disabled because of this. Now, how do we manage Mrs. M.? Now uh, these are the guidelines, and um, I was the uh, senior author on these guidelines. I realized that there's so much a variation in uh, treatment, and so we worked with the Cyclic Vomiting Syndrome Association. This is none other than Kathleen Adams, who's the founder and uh, president emeritus of the CBSA, which is a nonprofit organization. And um, we really put together a task force, and we worked with the American Neurogastroenterology and Motility Society, and came up with guidelines. And um, essentially, when you make a diagnosis of CVS, uh, you really, once you've made the diagnosis, you assess the severity. So you try and find out if patients have mild disease or moderate to severe disease. Now, typically, this is, again, an arbitrary definition. So we define mild disease as those who have less than four episodes in a year. And uh, they really don't have um, any ED visits or hospitalizations. Typically, the episode duration is less than two days. Um, and they recover very quickly. Now, moderate to severe CVS is more than four days, and it lasts a long period of time, and these patients actually present to the ED and also get hospitalized. Now, all patients we offer abortive medications, for example, like triptans and antiemetics and so on, and if patients have moderate to severe disease, then we offer them prophylactic medications. Now these are the various prophylactic medications that are available. Uh, We have neuromodulators, so please use the word neuromodulator. Once you tell a patient that you're giving them an antidepressant, you're really gonna kind of turn them off. And uh, neuromodulators is actually the right term because it causes, tricyclic antidepressants actually cause neurogenesis in your brain. Uh, The first-line therapy for CVS is amitriptyline and nortriptyline. It's effective in about 70% of patients. And uh, while there can be some side effects, it is effective um, the other alternative medications, as you can see here, is topromate. Uh, there is a newer medication, um, an NK1 receptor antagonist called Aprepotent. Fosaprepitant is actually the IV formulation of apropotene. And then you have mitochondrial supplements like coenzyme Q10 and riboflavin, uh, which is none other than vitamin B2, and that can help in mild cases. And um, if you if you look at the efficacy of tricyclic antidepressants, now I will tell you, is most of the data is based on open label trials or retrospective studies. And if you look at this table, you and look at the frequency of CBS episodes per year, the duration, and the number of ED visits and hospitalizations. Over two years, this was one study which showed that the frequency was reduced from 17 CVS episodes per year to about 3. The duration was reduced from 6 to 7 days to 2. And the number of ED visits and hospitalizations went down from 15 to 3. And as you can see, all these p-values are statistically uh, significant. And again, um, as far as the efficacy of tricyclic antidepressants, we found this was another study that we did, and we found that there was a complete response in about 58% of patients, meaning that they had an 80% reduction in their symptoms. There was a partial response in 28, and there was no response in about 14% of patients. So again, TCAs are actually effective. And um, again, when you start amitriptyline, uh, you have to remember that the onset of action is about six to eight weeks. So you do need to tell your patient that it's going to take about two months for them to feel better. You start Low and you go slow because if you give somebody 100 milligrams right away, they're going to be uh, they're going to feel comatose and they probably won't take the medication. So we typically titrate it in about 10 milligrams um, each week and then we get them to a target dose of 75 to 100. This dose is a little different as opposed to other disorders of nausea and vomiting. It can cause QT prolongation sometimes, so we recommend checking an EKG at baseline and during titration. And like I said, it does reduce the severity um, and frequency of CVS episodes. Now, there are some side effects. It can occur in 25% of patients. Unfortunately, side effects occur before you actually see the efficacy of the medication. Um, Daytime sedation is a problem, so make sure you uh, you tell your patient to take amitriptyline at night. Now, the daytime sedation will improve about over 12 weeks as the patient gets acclimatized to the medication. Uh, obviously, it can promote sleep, and uh, you know that can be good for your patient. Uh, dryness in mouth, constipation, and weight gain can be an issue, particularly with uh, female patients. Now, what about the effectiveness of Topramate? Um, there are some studies, and here there's a retrospective study that we did of 141 patients. Topramate was effective in 65% of patients, and this was actually a refractory group of patients who had not responded to amitriptyline and nortriptyline who had side effects. Um, one of the problems with Topramate was there is a high incidence of side effects in 55%, and almost a third discontinued the medication. Um, the main problems with topromate was cognitive dysfunction, uh, fatigue, and uh, paresthesia. Now, what about aprepitant? Now, uh, apripotent again, is an NK1 receptor antagonist. It was mainly FDA-approved uh, for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. Uh, but it is effective for CVS, so there are um, at least a couple of studies showing this. And um, this was another study, a retrospective study, uh, that we did, and as you can see, the red bars are before apropotene, and the blue bars are after apripetin. And you can see that there was a significant reduction in the number of CVS episodes, the number of ED visits related to CVS, and also the number of hospitalizations. These patients were actually refractory to other medications. Um, it is effective in about 70% of cases. The good thing with aprepitant is there's no lag time, so it's usually effective in about a couple of weeks or so. But unfortunately, it's expensive, it needs prior authorization, and so cost um, really poses a challenge in these patients. Now, what about triggers for CVS? When you're managing a patient, you really need to ask them about triggers. Um, And in fact, triggers can be both positive and negative. I have patients who will often say that they fall sick around vacations, uh, family union, reunions, and birthdays. And so it's very important to um, really kind of emphasize on stress management. If they have underlying problems, such as anxiety, uh, it's really important to um, refer them to a counselor or a psychologist. We have done, actually, some studies, um, and we just completed a study with something called heartfulness meditation, where it was uh, we had some amazing results, where it uh, reduced stress, rev- uh, reduced stress rev- levels, and really improved uh, patient-related quality of life. Um, sleep deprivation is another big trigger, and so you really need to tell your patient to sort of watch out for that, particularly your young patients who sort of pull all-nighters maybe uh, before examinations and so on, uh, make sure they don't starve. And um, chronic cannabis use, at least chronic heavy cannabis use, is a problem as well. And uh, what about abortive therapy? Again, this is what we call rescue medication. So you can have your patient uh, take a triptan like sumatriptan. Now it's very important to avoid the oral route. And what I typically tell my patients is to take an intranasal sumatriptan, 20 milligrams. You can repeat it in two hours if necessary. Um, and again, we give them standard anti-emetics. Again, when I give them on et cetera, and I usually give the sublingual form, uh, don't just give them a tablet. And um, again, the NK1 receptor antagonist, aprepitant can also be used. Sedation is also actually very helpful in, um, in sort of preventing the progression to nausea and vomiting. And so sometimes I tell them to take diphenhydramine just to try and get some sleep. And it's very important to tell them to take it as early during an episode as possible because that's when it's most effective. Now, what about the mind-body connection? Uh, As I said, uh, you know the center for nausea and vomiting, and the center for vomiting is in your brain, and uh, so there's there's this connection, and there seems to be something going on with that. And um, you know, C. B. S. patients actually there's a high association with anxiety and depression. Almost half, or even more than half, the uh, patients with C. B. S. can have associated anxiety and depression. Whether it's the chicken or the egg, we don't know but it's important to treat it. And so, um, you know, things like cognitive behavioral therapy and again, something called heartfulness meditation uh, can uh, really help and there is evidence to show that heartfulness meditation helps. And so I just want to summarize these points. Now, one, CVS is common. It has a prevalence of about 2%. It's a disorder of gut-brain interaction or a DGBI. It's diagnosed by Rome criteria because we don't have biomarkers for it. And limited testing, which includes maybe an EGD and imaging studies are warranted. It is associated with high healthcare utilization. It can be very debilitating, especially if it's not treated adequately. And it's associated with poor quality of life. So it's, and it's also best managed by uh, your local team as well as a CVS specialist. What are the other diagnoses to consider? Now, I'll briefly go over cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome and gastroparesis. Now, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is actually identical to CVS, so they also present with stereotypical episodes of nausea and vomiting, but usually it's thought to present after prolonged excessive of cannabis use. There should be relief of vomiting episodes with sustained cessation of cannabis use. And it might be associated with the pathological hot water bathing behavior that I spoke about before, but this is not pathognomonic in any ways. Again, it has to be present for, again, six months. Um, this is somewhat controversial, and, um, you know, again, though we have the Rome criteria, there's a lot of work that we need to do because actually it's paradoxical. Cannabis is actually an anti-emetic when, um, when it's used acutely, but chronic uh, use can result or lead to hyperemesis, and we think that CHS is a subset of CVS. Now, these are ED visits related to marijuana tourism in Colorado, and it's very striking to see that uh, when you look at this graph, the blue graph is the out-of-state residents, and there was an increased incidence of ED visits related to marijuana tourism. And so um, people started seeing more and more patients with vomiting, but again, whether this is a recognition bias is unclear, because these are the same ED physicians who didn't know much about cyclic vomiting syndrome about 10 years ago. And uh, so is CHS really a myth? Does it exist? And uh, so, you know, we looked at this. This is a study that I did uh, on my patient population. This was a cross-sectional study of 140 patients with CVS, and about 72% were female. Uh, Most of them were young. And um, as you can see, um, if you look at the blue part of it, you can see that most of them, approximately 60%, didn't actually use any cannabis at all. There were some people who used it about two to four times a month. Um, Some people used it two to three times a week. But really, if you look at that orange segment of the pie, about 22%, about one in five patients, used it more than four times a week. This was actually the first study that used a validated tool for understanding patterns of cannabis use. And so I think we need to focus maybe on these patients who are using it excessively. And when we ask them, hey, what's happening with your cannabis use, as you can see here, they said that it actually improved their symptoms. They said it improved vomiting, nausea, retching, abdominal pain, their appetite. A lot of them actually use it for mood. And um, you know they said it reduced even ED visits and hospitalizations and allowed them to work and uh, really continue with their higher studies. So this is a bit of a paradox. And uh, when we looked at these patients, uh, many of them tried to abstain from cannabis for at least a month. Again, I think that's not sufficient. We probably need to make uh, patients understand that it takes a long time for cannabis to get out of your system. So you really need to stop cannabis, we think, for at least six months or even a year. And um, one patient uh, reported resolution of symptoms following cannabis cessation, but he actually started using cannabis with higher CBD content and he remains uh, symptom-free. So there's actually a a lot of uh, research that needs to be done to better understand the effects of cannabis on GI health. So we also did a systematic review, and we looked at all the cases and case report and case series that were there. And uh, if you look at the systematic review, I'd like to draw your attention to this. The problem with the systematic review is that the follow-up on these cases was was very poor. In fact, uh, only about 16 to 25% of patients had follow-up for more than four weeks. And so really, when you have an episodic disorder like CVS or CHS, you really need to follow them for a prolonged period of time. If somebody has CVS or CHS, they will get better in five to seven days, whether you do something or you don't do something. And then we retrospectively try to look back and see if they met room Rome, uh, Rome for criteria for CHS. I'm sorry, that should actually be CHS, not CBS. And if you looked at it, only about 14 to 20% of all the purported cases of CHS met room for criteria. And uh, what about gastroparesis? Again, gastroparesis is actually defined as a delay in gastric emptying in the absence of mechanical obstruction. There are different types. Most of it is idiopathic. Uh, Diabetic makes up about 30 to 35% of cases, and you can have post-surgical. But unfortunately, there's poor correlation between symptoms and degree of gastric emptying. So somebody can have rapid gastric emptying and have a lot of symptoms. And typically, the medications that you use to improve symptoms don't actually improve emptying. And then the gastric emptying study actually also changes over time. So this is a bit confusing. And um, at least in the context of uh, CVS, like I said, we do not recommend a gastric emptying study. Uh, There's also an overlap between functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis. And um, if, if you look at that, a large number of patients can be reclassified into an alternative group after a year. So some patients who have gastroparesis can have normal Gastric emptying, if you check the test a little later. And um, there's something called the interstitial cells of Cajal, uh, which are there in your stomach. And, um, you know, they found that patients that there was similar loss of ICC uh, cells in the stomach of patients with both functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis. And so finally, I think uh, coming back to Mrs. M, uh, we treated Mrs. We did, I did diagnose her with cyclic vomiting syndrome. And then we started on amitriptyline, and uh, she was on 75 milligrams at night. And she actually significantly improved in about three to four months. Uh, we also gave her ondansetron uh, sublingually and asked her to use a sumatriptan nasal spray when she is about to have an episode as rescue or abortive therapy. And uh, fortunately, she was able to go back to work, and um, she's, she's very happy right now. And so thank you for listening.
1: Wonderful. That was um, a good summary. um, And great to hear that it's treatable and we can see... Um, patients really improve and get back to their normal lives so thank you so much for for all of that now i noticed that you mentioned migraines a few times in your presentation and the treatments you know the tcas and the sumatriptan can be very similar to what we're using in migraine migraine treatment is there a lot of overlap between cyclic vomiting syndrome and migraines or uh, you know the abdominal migraine so to speak
2: Yeah, so that's a very good question. And um, at least based on the data that we have so far, um, more than an overlap, I would say there was a significant association with migraine headaches, and there clearly seems to be a relation. Now, both of them are episodic disorders. If you look at patients with CVS, the data shows that, you know, about 50 or even 60% of patients can either have a personal or family history of migraine headaches. Mm -hmm. And like you said, there's a significant overlap in treatment. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of the medications that actually work for uh, migraine headaches seem to also work for CVS. Mm -hmm. So um, there's definitely a correlation. Uh, We are looking, we are trying to look into that a little bit more.
1: Okay. that's That would be, I think, super interesting because yes. there are so many novel therapies now on the market for migraines. and Exactly. Um, it would be interesting to see if they also work in Yeah, CVS. exactly.
2: So, you know, the CGRP antagonists and so on are really something that's used in migraine headaches. But unfortunately, uh, CVS has been very under-recognized and underfunded. So mm-hmm. we need more funding to study this and, and more research to uh, really look at normal therapies and understand the pathophysiology of CVS. Perfect, and then it seems like if there is so much association, like so many people
1: with CVS also have migraines, then treatment for one, in theory, should help with both.
2: They might, yeah. And again, uh, there are there are no formal studies looking at like the more novel therapies, like I said, mm-hmm. like uh, the CGRP antagonists. And, um, you know, there's been limited data and these are mostly limited to the TCAs and anticonvulsants, which were used mm-hmm. in the past for migraine and actually worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, again, there are no really randomized controlled trials. And, and there is some progress in the field, but I hope that, Um, you know, in the future, we'll be able to do more with this. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Now, I'm wondering, um, you know, in pediatric patients,
1: it sounds like CVS can go away or they can can go into remission, so to speak. Uh, Does the same thing happen in adults? Can they be cured of their CVS, or or does it ever go away?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question, and a lot of patients actually ask me the same. Like you uh, mentioned, in pediatric patients, what we know is when a child has CVS, about 70% of them will outgrow cyclic vomiting syndrome and maybe develop migraine headaches, or so there's even some recent data that they can develop functional dyspepsia and belly pain and so on. Now, as far as adult CVS is considered, um, really the diagnostic criteria was first only established in 2006. Mm-hmm. So we don't have that much of data. But having said that, um, you know, I actually did a study. I have a fifteen-year experience, a tertiary care experience of patients with CVS,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: um, there seems to be there's no cure for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it does remit and relapse like other, um, you know, like other disorders. And um, about one in five patients uh, had some resolution of symptoms um, during Mm follow-up, but many of them continued to have symptoms. Mm -hmm. Many of them required medications. I will say there was a significant reduction in the frequency and the severity of CVS episodes, but these medications don't cure them. They manage them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Now, is do you have a sense of the epidemiology? Is it, is it um, more common to see CVS in younger folks? Is it more common in women? Or, or can we really see it in all age ranges?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So that's a very good question. Now, it is more common in younger individuals. So people in their 20s and 30s and so on. But I have patients who are 75, mm-hmm, and it can okay. start as early as age two. So mm-hmm. there's a wide, actually, spectrum and wide variation, but it's mostly seen in young adults, and it seems to most commonly affect females a little more than males. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like everything affects like a, females y- more, y- right? does Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> well, um, you know, talking a little bit about the differential diagnosis, I know um, you talked about gastroparesis and um, the reasons why gastric emptying scans are not super helpful in diagnosing um, cyclic vomiting syndrome. Is it pretty um, pretty much based on history then to try to tease out the difference between a patient who might have cyclic vomiting versus gastroparesis or, or what can kind of help you in that scenario? Yeah,
2: so that's a great question. So when you look at somebody with gastroparesis, they will describe vomiting, which is there almost daily or, you know. Um, They have it many times in a week. But if you look at a patient with CVS, and it's very important to go back and ask your patient this history, how did it start? And usually they'll tell you, well, you know, I was, it was my birthday or something else going on, and it's suddenly out of the blue, they have this violent episode of nausea and vomiting um, that can last from hours to days, and then they actually go back to normal and they feel completely fine in between. For children, it's almost like a switch. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, some people are actually accused of malingering because they, they, you know, they think they're faking it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very important to recognize a pattern. And um, while well, I said there are people who can have nausea, chronic nausea, and uh, functional dyspepsia or some abdominal pain in between, CVS has a very classic story. And and just like in medical school, um, though there's so much of technology available, ultimately it is listen to your patient,
1: mm-hmm. listen mm-hmm. to your
2: patient, ask your patient the history, and you will clinch the diagnosis.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Now, do you? Um,
1: st- I mean the severity of the nausea and vomiting that a, a CVS patient experiences, can that be pretty variable? I mean, you mentioned a lot of ER visits, but yes. are, are there also people who just suffer at home and just doesn't reach the level of severity for the ER?
2: Absolutely, so while there's a subset who goes to the ER, ER um, there are patients who can have milder symptoms. Sometimes I have patients who maybe have it for a you know, couple of hours and they're okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't go to the ED. They just take some medications, you know, and try to sleep it off, and so on and so forth. Just like you know, people with migraine headaches. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a wide variation in presentation. They can mm-hmm. people with very mild disease and severe disease. Having said that. Um, You know, we just did a study and uh, we're kind of writing it up, but we we see that there's a wide variation in disease severity, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with uh, CVS, just like so many other, um, you know, so many other disorders. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly that needs to be taken into consideration. We're also trying to hopefully develop, uh, you know, tools because we don't, like, how do you call something severe, you know? Mm Uh, We need to look at patient-reported outcomes and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, everybody is a little different and you have to tailor your approach. Mm -hmm. Is the same true for kind of the
1: number of um, exacerbations like or the, the, the time frame between exacerbations? Because I imagine if you only have one exacerbation every few months, it might be even harder to diagnose. Uh,
2: it is, and that's why this, uh, you have to go back to the history. So I have patients who will have it, say, maybe three times a year, mm-hmm. but then I have patients who have it uh, almost every month or even twice a month, -hmm. And so that's really severe CVS, and you have to do something because they're not able to work, they're not able to go to school, Um, and it's terrible to be vomiting for five days twice Mm -hmm. a month. Yeah, and so that's severe disease. But Uh if, like you said, if somebody just has it three times a week, then I say, hey, you know, I mean, three times a year, I say, he, here's your abortive medication regimen, and use it. And many of them are actually able to recognize triggers and successfully abort their episodes. Okay,
1: awesome. So just like in migraines, uh, one strategy of therapy is to do abortives only if it's not um, more a more severe case. Yeah, exactly, like. and I tell
2: my patients, have you, about your abortive medications at all times because you don't know, you cannot predict, it's unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if they have that, they do successfully manage their uh, symptoms. Okay, well,
1: Speaking of antiemetics, um, it's, you know, it seems like you didn't focus too much on your more traditional antiemetics like ondansetron or promethazine or compazine. Um, do you use those much, or is it more of the, uh, like the TCAs or the, the newer medicines that you mentioned? Yeah,
2: so the TCAs are what we call prophylactic medications. So they are daily medications, which are very different from the abortive medications. Mm-hmm. So the TCAs you take daily, whether you vomit or not. Now, the Ondansetron, yes, we do give a lot of Ondansetron. Almost, I think, all my patients have it. Mm-hmm. Um, so ondencetron, the sumatriptan is for acute use. So that's your abortive or rescue medication. And um, Ondansetron works for a lot of patients, but some people it doesn't. And mm-hmm. so that's important to recognize. I do ask them to take, um, you know, the Compazine and so on and so forth that you um that you mention, because that can one sedate the patient and two, it also has an antiemetic effect, mm-hmm. and uh, that will also help with CVS episodes. But that's for acute treatment versus you know chronic daily therapy. Okay, got it. Now,
1: um, if you do have a patient that is on both TCA and you're giving them uh, on Densitron for. Um, and abortive, a Cuban, yeah. yeah. Then do you worry much about uh, QT prolongation? You mentioned specifically that we should be monitoring that. Yeah,
2: no. I mean, when I uh, type TCAs, suddenly uh, we get an EKG at baseline and as we titrate them. but. Um, it's usually not a problem, um, you know, as far as I haven't seen. At least there are no reports from all the studies we've done of any serious uh, problems with cardiac arrhythmias and so on and so forth. Sometimes when you're titrating the TCAs and some patients, you know, if there are a lot of medications and there's like polypharmacy going mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. or when they're acutely sick, you know, they might have problems with like the electrolytes and potassium. Mm-hmm. You might want mm-hmm. to repeat it. Okay. Um, so certainly, if they're in an ER, you would recommend getting an EKG. But in general, if somebody has a normal EKG, um, you know at baseline they can use their own etc and you have to remember they don't use it every single day of the year they right. only use it when they get episodes mm-hmm. okay now what advice
1: do you have for patients who use marijuana for their nausea you mentioned that it like, it's a paradox. It does work. Um, So do you have a general advice or recommendation to kind of make sure they don't push themselves into the cannabinoid hyperanimous problem?
2: Yeah. So that's, you know, that's a great question. I think there's a lot we need don't know about cannabis use and its impact on GI health. Unfortunately, it's been legalized, but uh, we really don't have a lot of research and data about it. And so when I talk about cannabis use in the context of uh, cyclic vomiting or hyperemesis, first you need to ask your patient, how many times are you using it? What kind of concentrate are you using it? Are you smoking it or is it edible? And um, nowadays, we, we didn't spend a lot of time on this, but you have Uh, a joint in the 80s contained like 4% THC. Now it's 14%. And we have cannabis products which are 65% THC or Mm, 85% THC, which are called cannabis concentrate. Mm -hmm. So really, it depends on the potency of the cannabis product, the frequency. Now, if they're using it daily or near daily, and they're using cannabis products which high THC potency, I would definitely tell them and talk to them about it, have a conversation. Don't be judgmental. And actually tell them to slowly start cutting down and say hey maybe this is making your vomiting worse have them cut down with the goal of hopefully abstaining from it and seeing what happens but i would also treat them for the vomiting and i would treat them with the standard medications Mm -hmm. that we would do
1: okay now since it does help as an anti-emetic do you ever recommend thc or cannabis to help with um nausea vomiting uh never Never. So okay. <laughs> there's no data.
2: There's no data to support that, and um, it's kind of paradoxical. And in fact, what we think is low doses of cannabis can have anti-emetic properties. But chronic use and high doses can actually, again, we didn't go into this, can cause what we call cannabinoid receptor downregulation and have the opposite effect. So, you know, an analogy would be this jockeys, and you use a little bit and it's protective, and you use a lot more, you can kill. You know, mm-hmm. somebody's going to die from mm-hmm. it. Um, so that's how I kind of look at it. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Um, now, last question is kind of about disability and um, and that sort of thing. You you know, love your patient, Mrs. M. Fortunately, was able to go back to work. But do you have like an approach for disability or FMLA um, to help people protect their jobs?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we are very comprehensive in a clinic and um, certainly when somebody is struggling a lot, uh, we certainly support any application for disability when it's indicated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, the hope is, you know, they will be able to resume work with proper proper treatment. And I've had a lot of success with treating these patients. But, yes, we support them. We give them letters. Uh, you know, really, maybe there's a school kid, and so we would get a, give them a letter saying, you know, this is a condition called cyclic vomiting syndrome, and they need some accommodation to be able to graduate and, you know, mm-hmm. complete their Uh, schooling or even with work, that they need Mm -hmm. some workplace accommodation when they have acute CVS um, attacks and that this should not be held against them. Mm -hmm. Um, So certainly this is something that is, I think, part of the overall management of CVS patients, and it really kind of takes a village, you know. Mm -hmm. It takes (laughs) a physician and a nurse and and a psychologist and so many other people and social workers to help these patients.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, This has just been so uh, interesting and informative, um, and I'm definitely going to be on the lookout for my CVS patients. I'm sure I have them, (laughs) even if I haven't recognized it yet. So thank you so much. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point. Dangam?
2: Thank you. Thank you, Jingjing. So thank you for listening to me. And I guess if you slept through my whole presentation, one of the main things I really want you to remember is that, A, Cyclic vomiting syndrome is a disorder that's characterized by what we call episodic or episodes of nausea and vomiting and abdominal pain. It's very, very important uh, to diagnose this promptly. It's based on uh, the Rome 4 clinical criteria, and so there are no biomarkers for it. But if you can actually diagnose it and treat it promptly, uh, you will improve uh, the patient's life. And so hopefully, Um, more people will learn to diagnose and manage CVS effectively. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive
1: CME credit for watching by logging on to ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join us again next week with my guests, Dr. Sachin Kale and Maureen Sapphire, to learn about the management of cancer pain in primary care. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in, and farewell until next time.